0: Bearded, boisterous and booming through his beard. We are now blessed with some tales from the life and career of Brian Blessed, from mountaineering on Everest to the peaks of his career on TV and stage. These are his recollections from a programme recorded in 1996, An Hour with Brian Blessed. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. Have a look. My goodness me, what a house. Well, you know, it's extraordinary. A few days ago, I was 60 years of age. I can't believe that I've become 60. A very fit, uh, sexy 60, I might say. (laughs) My father is 90 and he's a bull, a wonderful man. He was a coal hewer in his time. Uh, my mother's 87. She's in uh, in a home quite close to my father. And when I started this tour, she said, "Oh, Brian," she said, "you won't shout, will you?" Because she said the last time you shouted, I wet myself. <laughs> so I, I don't want that to happen tonight, if, if I can avoid it. <laughs> well, let me start, ladies and gentlemen. I was born in 1936. My name is Brian Blessed. I was born in a place called Goforb. A mining village halfway between Doncaster and Barnsley. There were great times. I mean, it was wonderful to be born then, just before the war, then the post-war years. Really exciting times. You know, in those days we had trains. I mean, they're not trains today, are they? They're electrical <laughs> busses, aren't they? I mean, we are drugs. out. God, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> but when I was a kid. There was a series of trains called the Peregrine, the Falcon, and I'm leading up to You Know What. When I was a kid at the Doncaster plant, I saw coming out of that station a train that defied description the Mallard.
1: Oh,
0: like a great big blue Moby Dick coming out yeah, with its great Bugatti front and the tenders behind. It was a stormy day, and I just fell on my knees as a kid in supplication, in adoration at this train. Oh, it was sensational. But they were great days, you see. And when I lived in goforth we had two cinemas. We had The Empire, and we had The Picture House, and we had marvellous film stars like Victor Mature in Samson Delilah. And of course, we had Macneys on a Saturday. We had Zorro and Hoblong Cassidy and Flash Gordon. Yes? <laughs> <laughs> Of course you are preempting. As a child I always played Voltan. It's an extraordinary I never thought that many years later I'd actually play Voltan in the actual film. But really exciting days. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I'll stop there for a second and say it was the it was in the kind of hotspur comic at the time that I first read about Maurion Irving, who disappeared on Everest in 1924 in Norfolk Jackets and Putties and Knickerbockers. Thirty years before it was climbed by Hillary and Tenzing with the British in 1953. They disappeared in 1924, 600 feet from the summit. You see, we know about Scotland kind of the Antarctic, we know about Livingston and Lawrence of Arabia, but very few people knew about Maori and Irving. We knew about Captain Webb, you know, but do you know who was Maury and Irving. Amazing! This amazing story that they got so close. And then, of course, we understood that Everest is five and a half miles high, almost as far <laughs> as Doncaster. So we (laughs) were absolutely bewitched by this. Of course now we know, of course, that Everest has other names like Chomalungma, goddess mother of the earth by the Tibetans and the Asians, to the Nepalese, Sagamatha, other names like Gadoing, Lembo or the great Headache Mountain. And the Dalai Lama says that its real name is Yankinamunkinatankia Turquoise Mountain in the Sky. Wonderful name. That's his real name. It is considered by all the discerning that the expedition to Everest in 1924 is the most wonderful, the most sensational, and the greatest expedition ever mounted on God's earth. It has to be. It has to be. Norfolk jackets, putties, knickerbockers, scarves. Elliott glasses, winds of, of a, between 100 miles to 180 miles an hour, temperatures that plunge to 40, 50, 60, 70 degrees below zero with a wind chill factor, and then go higher to 140 degrees above on some of the glaciers. Such extremes. And they went. And uh, Somerville and Norton, lovely names again. Somerville and Norton got to 28,000 feet after being there for about 12 weeks in adverse weather conditions. 28,000 feet, and then Norton went on for another 126 feet. They got to 28,126 feet without oxygen in those clothes. And five days later, Mallory, the press was full of it, Mallory can do it, Mallory can do it, our great Sir Galahad. Mallory set off with young Irving for the summit using rudimentary oxygen apparatus. They ascended the North Collin record time, two and a half hours. They got a 25,000 feet in record time. They got a 27,000 feet in record time. And then Odell, the geologist's backup climber, arrived at 26,000 feet the next day, and he rejoiced because he'd found fish fossils on Everest that show that Everest, of course, had been on the seabed. The yellow band is the sediment from the seabed of the Sea of Tethys, and is full of shells and fossils and so forth. And he looked up, and there's the first step at 28,000 feet, and at 28,250 feet above the second step he saw these two ants as the mists cleared. The whole ridge became clear, and it was none other than Mallory and Irving, barely 600 feet below the summit, moving expeditiously for the summit. And the mist came down and they were never seen again. A great mystery. When we made the film, we embraced the mystery. Mystery is a rare commodity these days. We want to know everything. But we wanted to make a film to pay tribute to their great exploits and their great ideals. Ideals to a certain extent that we've lost today. Anyway, I'll stop there, back to Brian Blessed. I left school at 14 to become an undertaker's assistant, because my dad was injured in the coal mines, I did my schooling at night. And then, of course, I did the amateur theatre and so forth. It was in my blood, did my national service, and then went to the Bristol Vic School, and then went into rep. I became 22, 23. And when I was about 23 years of age, I was in the Britannia hut in Sass Fae and lots of climbers there all talking about Mallory and Irving. Of course, you know, they waxed lyrical and I waxed lyrical and they cried their eyes out. And they said, Brian, one day you must go. You must wear the same clothes. You must go and do it. You must tell the story. And, you know, actors said the same thing. I said, what the hell are you talking about? Because I'm the most untalented mountaineer I've ever come across. I mean, and, you know, this is not exactly the right figure for Himalayan climbing. (laughs) Anyway, I persisted. I became 24, 25. I found myself in Z cars. I was so sexy. Seven thousand letters a week from the ladies. Ooh. I was very botched, very broad shouldered. Now then, now then, with a lovely deep voice. Now then, except to want to be dee. They loved me. It was wonderful. The Queen put it in one of her magazines that I was her favorite character in the whole of television. <sighs> I think. I mean. <laughs> and that I kept her very happy during her pregnancy. Everyone was. <laughs> w- w- <laughs> Everyone was so jealous of me. But quite right. I was very special and very sexy. Anyway. And of course, at that particular time, I said to the BBC, I want to make this film about Mallory. They said, you're crazy. They said, Hugh Weldon said, I'll tell you what, Brian, we'll give you our word that we'll provide half the money, 250,000 quid. It costs half a million to do it, if you can find the rest. So I tried. I became 30, 37, 47, 50, 51, 52. I tried everywhere. That's it, you say, you've got to hold on. Hold on to your dream. That's what tonight is about. Ah, I know. I became 51, 52. I almost pulled it off. Uh, Yorkshire Television almost pulled it off, and HTV almost pulled it off. Anglia Television almost pulled it off. But I got so frustrated at times. I once found myself by the bedside of poor Getty when he was having a blood transfusion, and I threatened to pull the bloody plugs on him <laughs> if he didn't give me the money. I even tried Everest double glazing. <laughs> And then eventually, I was promoting Ken Branagh's Henry V. I played the Duke of Exeter in Henry V, covered in armour all the time. In actual fact, in America, they call me Robocop. (laughs) (laughs) I've just finished his Hamlet, playing the ghost about two and a half miles high, with kind of wonderful radioactive eyes and blonde hair, blonde beard. Anyway... In 1989, I promoted Henry V, the producer was Stephen Evans. He's having a wonderful time with me. He said, oh, Brian, I'm loving it. It's my first film. I can't come down. The adrenaline is just inside me, swelling up and down. Brian, would you be upset if I offered to kind of pay the other half of the Everest expedition? (laughs) He said, tell me about it. So I took him by the scruff of the neck for five and a half hours. I pinned him in his Rolls Royce. So, at last, we were going. And then I was scared. I mean, I was certainly in awe of Mount Everest, but I was more scared of being myself. This is why I'm here. You see, it got me for 35 years. I've been other people. I've been hawkmen and policemen and pirates and Augustus Caesar and God knows what. I'd have to be myself on the camera, and I thought I might disappear. And at that particular time, I made the camera my father. And it was a green door for me, I could then be myself. So off we went, filming, i we from Rhino Mesner. Well, Rhino is the world's greatest mountaineer. He climbed Everest without oxygen in 1982 alone, solo. He did a Scott of the Antarctic expedition in three weeks as a holiday, there and back. He's kind of legendary. We filmed him, and he was wonderful. And we filmed Bonington, who was absolutely charming and lovely, and Lord Hunt, who said to me, well, I can honestly say, blessed, that never in a million years would I have had you on my expedition. <laughs> Which, of course, filled me with confidence. <laughs> also, the doctor was uh, altitude doctor, high altitude doctor, the best one in the world is uh, Charles Clark, Charlie Clark, who wanted to fail me. You could feel it. He's putting wires on me in every bloody orifice. And you know I was heavy but fit. Some fit but heavy. And he wanted to fail me. He so, said, you know, you're bloody fit. I said, I said, you bastard, you're fit. I said, come on, Charles. Come on, Charles. I said, can't a big heavy man go up Everest? He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. Don Willems was big. And he died. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother said at the time, you won't forget to wrap up. <laughs> she thought Everest was actually in, in Scotland somewhere, you know, i convinced that it was down in, you know, she didn't understand. My father knew. Of course, the press said to my wife, what about you? I mean, your husband's 53 and he's now going to Mount Everest. Aren't you worried? She said, I can't get rid of him quick enough. I've been, she said, I've been sleeping with George Lee Murray for 20 years, she said. Let him go. And so she was glad to get rid of me. So we were on our way. It was me, John Paul Davidson, our BBC crew, a sound man called Graham Hoyland, who was the grand-nephew of Somerville, who got to 28,000 feet in 1924. A real feeling of history, but awaiting us in Kathmandu was a giant. I mean, a real giant. He's six foot nine. Jeff Long from Boulder, Colorado. He climbed all the, mount- all the routes in Yosemite, El Capitan, and he climbed Makaloo, and he was going to be my minder. Gigantic man. He was waiting for us there, and David Bashir's, who climbed Everest twice, the southern side, he was a, our high-altitude cameraman. So, we got to the roof of the world eventually, right to the top of 15,000 feet, onto the Tibetan plain, and it was pink and beige. <gasps> and the sky was a kind of azure blue, and it was also still. It Reminded me of the photographs of Mars, the nice photographs of Mars. Of course, we knew, of course, we were near Everest. We were getting closer. And the next day, we're in this Toyota Land Cruiser. So we'd film a bit and get out and film a bit, exercise, walk half a mile, walk two miles, get back in. And towards the evening, we turned around some boulders. I was at the front of the Toyota Land Cruiser, and I suddenly said, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" I said, um, "That's Everest." And I got out of it, and I just sank to my knees. I couldn't move my legs. I it took me ages to kind of try and stand up. They filmed it. I mean, it's it's not my film. As I said, I'm a servant in the film. And, and J.P.'s made a wonderful job. He won lots of Grand Prixs with it. And they all, they all gathered around me. We just wept. It was there. It was, she was kind of... It's a woman, you see. It's female. And she was there. It was gigantic and red. The sun had made it all red. And, of course, Maury and Irving there were very, very close. I realised... And beyond it, there was no countryside. It was all kind of wonderful cobalt blue sky. Ah. Oh. You see, when you read books about exploration, when you read these things, I mean the big fat books of Everest, well, suddenly when you go there or go to these places, whether it's The Lost World, Matagross, or wherever you go, you suddenly are becoming part of it yourself. You leap off the pages. You become part of it. You've got to go for it. I set off the next day, and I, I was half an hour in front of everybody else, and I got into this valley, and I turned around a corner, and there was a rombuk Monastery. There's a rombuk Monastery. And, of course, most of it's been destroyed by the MiG fighters of the Chinese in 1959. We need to get the archaeologists there to restore it. But there, when we joined us, has to be the most amazing site on God's earth. It has to be. Because there is this great valley and mountains going to 21,000 feet, one to call Ri Ring that Mallory climbed. And there... As Mallory said, like the charge of the light brigade is the central Rumbuk glacier for about 20 miles. These shark fins look like frozen terracotta soldiers and they kind of races and it runs right up to the base of Everest. And as Mallory said, it is like Winchester Cathedral. Oh, and bigger and bigger. Mallory said higher, 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 higher than imagination dared to venture. The top of Everest itself appeared. Well, ladies and gentlemen, cut this very short to get onto something else. At base camp, you're at there at 17,000 feet. You spend about a week to a fortnight there, acclimatising and this, that and the other, moving very slowly to allow your blood to thicken, to take in the lack of oxygen. Then you move up the central Rongbuk Glacier, then into the east Rongbuk Glacier, the fabled east Rongbuk Glacier, to 19,000 feet. You stay there for two days, then you come down 15 miles down to base camp, stay there a week, then you go back up again, After you've been there a week or so, or two weeks, then you move up to 21,300 feet. You stay there for five or six days, and then you come back down, 30 miles down the really rough East Rombok Glacier, back to base camp, stay there for two or three weeks. Then you go all the way up to the North Coal, which is kind of wonderful and steep. And there it is. That was our objective. You see, if we could get to the top of the North Coal, we could complete the film. The North Coal is on Everest. It's the North Coal of Everest. And the experts said, I couldn't possibly do it. It was absolutely impossible for a man of my age, of my build, to get up the North Col; It would be suicide. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Now then, the director reminded me, of course, that I was an actor. In this film, they filmed me in Cats, they filmed me in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, all kinds of things they put in the film. And JP said, it is now your job to cheer up the Mountaineers, everybody at base camp. You've got to kind of buck up their spirits. So I told them acting stories, as I'm going to tell you. Well, I've always had a healthier disrespect for great actors. I love great actors. We all love them. They're marvellous. And they're our heroes. And Sir John gilgud is a wonderful man. Great actor, a one-off. We love him to death. I've always teased him. And I was at the National Theatre in a play called State of the Revolution by Robert Bolt playing Gorky. And he was in Volpone. And the two stages were kind of side by side for the two different plays. He he wore a lovely hat with feathers. And of course at the half hour, he had to pass me every night in the corridor. And he dreaded it because I always goosed him. (laughs) And he said to Michael Bryant, "Uh, That Brian Blessed is a terrible man, but he's a lovely bit of rough. <laughs> i had tea with him one day. You'll do come and have some tea. Oh, Brian, people tell me you're a very charming man. You're a very nice man, but you swear a great deal. He said, you modern actors, we never know what you're going to do. We're doing a terrible play called Home. I'm doing it with Sir Rafe Richardson and a modern actor called Teddy Rigby. And last night, Teddy Rigby did a line in an entirely different way, and Rafe went straight into the third act. <laughs> and we couldn't get him out. And I said, Rafey, 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 you're in the third act. He said, oh, Johnny, it's such a terrible play. I don't think the audience will notice. (laughs) I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, of course, great actor that he is. He has never been a master of accents. I don't know if any of you have heard his cassette where he plays Sherlock Holmes, a game with Rafe Richardson as Dr. Watson. But there's a moment in it where, of course, he pretends to be a coal man. And he comes on and says, Call Blimey. (laughs) He's saying it all the time, Call Blimey, Call Blimey. Coal, matey, coal, matey, where do you want the coal? (laughs) And Richardson says, Oh, my man, just put it over there. He says, Oh, Watson, you fool, it's me. (laughs) And Richardson Richardson replies, God heavens, Holmes, I wouldn't have recognized you. I actually, when I was to talk to him about Shakespeare, having done a lot of Shakespeare, I said to him, Sir John, I said, I mean, Sir John, I said, you know, a lot of Shakespeare is very hard to understand. He said, oh, I know, so many lines I don't understand. There's a line, a fortune, a fortune, a fortune, a fortune and a half. will do your heart good. I defy Shakespeare to understand lines like that. So when I come to lines like that, I speak them louder, and then the audience think there's something wrong with them. <laughs> when I was in Cats, the musical Cats, Paul Nicholas is making a film with Sir John Gielgud and Gielgud was playing a cowboy in it. It's not been released. I'm trying to get hold of it. I'll give a fiver to get hold of it. But he played a cowboy with a Stetson and a six-shooter. And Paul would come back to the theatre at night ill, having laughed all day. But I can imagine him walking down the street and saying, This town ain't big enough for the pair of us. <laughs> get out of here, you pesky varmit. <laughs> One of the great actors... But we all love in the professions that an actor who died six years ago called Harry Andrews. Now, Harry Andrews, you saw him in the film The Hill, the bald headed sergeant. In many films, you've seen Harry Andrews. Whatever film he's in, he steals it. He's has The Deadly Affair, all kinds of things. a policeman. He's brilliant. He can do ambassadors, anything. I mean, uh, a long time ago, I saw him in Helen of Troy, playing Hector. The great Hector, with a kind of great big red wig and ugly face and a great red beard and a tiger skin. Saying the line, go back to your Spartan lady. And you thought, oh, that is Hector. Amazing. And of course, it, the Royal Shakespeare Company played uh, Othello, King Lear, Henry VIII, you name it. A man of great stature. Stunning. Well, I got to know him. I got to know him because in the film Man of La Mancha, I sing his songs. He had a huge speaking voice, but he couldn't sing. And of course, he was renowned, you see, in Shakespeare for drying and talking crap. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you dry in Shakespeare, it's very hard to ad lib. I mean, really, it's terrible. I mean, you can try it. It's awful. (laughs) He just talks absolute rubbish with his huge voice all the time. And I said, Harry, I said, uh, Marius Goring told me this, but is it true about the mistakes you made in Julius Caesar? I'm afraid so. Did Did you really say, I'm afraid so? And on the opening night of Julius Caesar, Gilgud was playing Cassius, and Marius Goring was playing Casca, and Harry was playing Brutus. And of course, they were discussing how to kill Julius Caesar. And Brutus says the lines, Let us not be butchers, Cassius. Let us carve him as a dish. Fit for the gods. And on the first night, Harry said, Let us not be butchers, Cassius. Let us carve him as a fish. A dish. A fish dish, <laughs> fit for the dogs, <coughs> and Geogood went, oh, Christ. <laughs> now, then, the moment you've all been waiting for, I'm going to talk about me. Of course, in Flash Gordon, I play Voltan. Yeah, you've seen that? You've seen that? It's a cult movie nowadays. Uh, the uh, Queen did the music, not the Queen, Queen the that. <laughs> Queen of the Music, and Timothy Dalton is in it, marvellous and heroic, and Ming is played by Max von Sydow, the great Swedish actor. It's a great film, it's kind of got great style, and I play Voltan, the King of the Hawkmen, as I did as a child. I, was, I loved it and enjoyed it so much. I mean, actually, I went to Chicago last year and walked on the stage and just said one of the lines of Voltan, and I just said, I just said, Gordon's alive, <laughs> and they stood up and cheered me for 20 minutes. <laughs> How bloody mad can you get? I went off the stage and came back on again. They're still she's still cheering. I mean, and that brought the house down when I said, "Oh well, who wants to live forever?" Like, Cheers, standing ovations. I adore playing it. And I had this kind of wonderful makeup and kind of wonderful kind of golden costume and dark makeup and these great big wings. And it took them half an hour to screw the wings on because they went right down to the floor. They were solid. Well, once they were on, you see, you can't sit in a chair, you know. And, and so they built me a perch. <laughs> so I'd be on this perch and they give me my coffee. Of course, all the camera crews would say, Pretty Polly, Pretty Polly, Pretty Polly. <laughs> It's an absolutely marvellous sequence. I had this great bazooka. I'm mean, shooting everybody in sight. Very impressive in the film, but of course it's made of cardboard. You know they're all made of. Of course they are. It's a tremendous sequence. And you had the great rocket, me flying down with my wings, with my hawkmen, all the monsters there, explosions going off, all the full works. Really very enjoyable. And I came running on. Stand by, Brian. Action. Freeze. You turkeys. We put in the special
1: effects.
0: (laughs) Oh. I have never, never felt a bigger tit. (laughs) Well, you can't. How can you come on? Action! Freeze, you turkeys! I mean, you can't do it, can you? I'm Flash Gordon, I have to say Flash Gordon. He had a little tiny gun, Flash Gordon. He'd come on and go, bang, dang bang, dang ba-dang, 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 ba-dang. <laughs> What I told the mountaineers to, which I mustn't miss out, was, of course, when I was 14 years of age, I was an undertaker's assistant. I'd glad to get the job, 30 bob a week. And I made the coffins and I put the robe in my boss was a man called Percy Phillips and a kind of really Dickensian character. We had fistfights and God knows what. Talk about violence today, <laughs> you know, all those days. But I had to make the coffins and I was always bad at carpentry. I just wasn't any good at it. And I made the coffins too small. So <laughs> He'd find me putting the bodies in the coffins and stuffing the bodies in, you know. (laughs) Come in, what you doing, what you doing? You can't do that. I said, well, he can't feel anything, he's dead. He can't feel anything. Anyway, I got fed up with it. A rich man in the area... (laughs) There's a a rich man in the area had died, and and I made the coffin, so I made it two feet too long. (laughs) And At the funeral, people said, it looks as though he's taking his bloody money with him. (laughs) (laughs) of course I have to say that on Everest I once talked to a nun once I said why do you want to be like the Dalai Lama why do you want to be self-realized like Buddha and all that she says so I don't have to go to the toilet and (laughs) I can understand that. And on Everest, you know, I used to kind of always go away from the rest of them and find my own private toilets. I couldn't bear all those toilets. Well, when I was an undertaker's assistant, I used to have to carry the dead bodies, you know. They always broke wind. They all farted all the time. It was just awful. And of course, I was carrying one one day. I mean, the stench was awful. I and mean, was carrying this great big fat man. And I got him to the top of the stairs, you know. And I just, eventually, I was so fed up, I just, he was farting so much, I just, I threw him down the stairs. I said, if you can fart, you can walk. <laughs> His wife was at the bottom of the stairs. I don't and she said, I thought, it's all right, Brian, lad. He was a mucky booger when he was alive. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, my first job in the theatre. I got four pound nineteen and six a week. I mean, the actors should do it. ASM and small parts, and we built the sets and played parts. I actually played big parts. I was at Nottingham at the Goldsmith Street the little playhouse theatre. I had to mend all the ovens underneath and for all the central heating and coke them up and decoke them. They don't know they're born today. They go straight from drama school to be kind of stars in this, that and the other. Anyway, it's a very small stage. The wings on that side on the left were very big but the wings here, they didn't exist. And this was just a door there, the stage door. And it opened up onto the main street. See, and people were always coming in. And I was in the middle of the onion speech in Pier Gint and a fellow walked in, and he said, excuse me, could you tell me the way to Mapley Road? I said, yes, yes. He just go down there and turn left and then go right and shook his hands, you see. I, th- I think they all thought it was part of the bloody play. <laughs> and what mean, I was right in the middle of the back of the Christie, I was playing the inspector and the guy suddenly rushed in and said, you're all bloody puffs!" <laughs> well, I mean, there's no answer to that, is there? (laughs) A few tips. I'm sure there's lots of thespians out here. There's a director up there and all kinds of people around here. And if you have to address people, welcome your nerves. The best actors, like Anthony Hopkins, are the vulnerable actors. Actors who are always vulnerable and nervous. But welcome your nerves. Don't fight them. Be nervous. If you're giving a lecture and you really are nervous, grab a piece of your clothing like that, and get that, get that in there, and that can be tense. You've made your left arm tense, and your right arm is free and relaxed, until you get more relaxed, and the other hand comes out of your pocket. Nerves hit you, not in your legs, stomach back. Nerves hit your mouth, and uh, it can drain your mouth within seconds. But more than anything, they attack your lips and your tongue. Have a drink of water and, and wet your lips, otherwise your lips can stick to your tongue, which is really awful. Well, of course, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I love the soaps as much as anybody else. But then I've done them. But there is a day when it's All Saints Day and you're found out. You have to stand up and be counted. And that was the day when, in 1986, I first appeared at the Royal Shakespeare Company as Claudius. I played Claudius in Hamlet, Roger Rees was Hamlet, and Ken Branagh was Laertes, and Virginia McKenna was Gertrude. I know, and it's a tremendous kind of stage. Watch lights, by the way. Lights can be too bright and completely take everything out of your head. Anyway. An amazing day. All the great chandeliers everywhere. Tremendous stage. I mean, ladies in waiting, no money spared, expense. It was absolutely sensational. And I walked on right from the back. I mean, almost as far back as this. And the bells were going, the music's going. I'm in gold and silver. And as I walk forward, everyone kneels. And gradually, the music stops and the bells stop and everyone is just kneeling. And it's just me. And I've had a drink of water. So our lips were all right. And as far as the eye could see, all I could see was stars, celebrities, royalty, critics. Get the first few lines out. Don't worry about being brilliant. Just get them out. Though yet have hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and you're on your way. Anyway, they had is, of course. At Stratford, of course, they had is, But in the spring, it's very cold. And you get lots of shadowbanks and lots of old people come from Yorkshire and everywhere, you know. And they arrive there, and of course they get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they do Anne Hathaway's Cottage at uh, 7 o'clock, and Shakespeare slept here, and Shakespeare went to the toilet here, and all the... And they arrive at the theatre absolutely knackered. <laughs> and I was halfway through this speech, I was halfway through this damn speech, I got Ken Brenner on my right, and as far as the eye could see, all I could see was that. Drooping heads! <laughs> People are fast asleep. And there was a man in the front row, he's doing the proverbial. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken Branner's marvellous, he's very helpful. He was just like this, he's shaking. Shaky with laughter, Ken Branner. Hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> and as of this, as halfway through the speech, as Claudius and the woman said to me, excuse me, Mr. Blessed, what is it, what is it? Shall I close his mouth? <laughs> I said, no. I said, no. I said, no. I said, don't bother, it's, not, it's all right. Oh, I, I'm so sorry, Mr. Blessed, I'm so embarrassed. I've been giving him black coffee, I've been trying to keep him awake, I knew he'd embarrassed me. I'm so sorry, it's all right, it's all right, love. Don't worry, let him kip. There's a, there's a bloody court behind me. <laughs> all shaking. I said, it's all right, anybody, ladies and gentlemen, anybody wants to have a kip, have a kip. <laughs> I come back to Ken Branagh, who's like this, shaking. Of course, he's got the next lines. Now then, ladies, what's the news from you? And he goes, <laughs> just completely, This is a... I know what you're going to say. You wish to leave Denmark? <laughs> yes. Yes. You may go. <laughs> completely, absolutely. Well, in 1981, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say that I was in the musical Cats. Did any of you see Cats? Or have you seen Cats? Yes. D- did you see me in Cats? Out of interest? Yes. Well, of course, I played old Deuteronomy in Cats. I was in it for two years. The two years passed very quickly because it was such a very lovely show to be in. I would say that Cats and Tre- Return to Treasure Island, Benny uh, the Fifth, all Ken Branagh's films, Flash Gordon in particular, of course, and things like that, and Zed Cars and, and Carlson, I, Claudius, were a tremendously kind of happy shows for me, but then I tend to enjoy myself. Whatever I'm doing, really, even Basil Brush, when I once did Basil Brush. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Cats. For those of you who have not seen Cats, the description of the story is quite simple. All these stray cats, moggy cats, get together and they decide to have a ball. It's called the Jellical Ball, in honour of Old Deuteronomy, who is going to arrive a third of the way through and then choose one of the cats to go to the cat heaven at Nirvana, the Heaviside Lair, as it's called, higher than the Russell Hotel. Actually, the heavy side Lair exists. It's above the Van Allen radiation belt. Anyway, through the show, of course, I came on, and in the interval, the cats left the stage. They all left the stage because they were repulsed by Grizabella, the glamour cat, played by Elaine Page. Marvellous people in it. Ken Wells, Elaine Page. Wayne Sleep, Paul Nicholas, Bonnie Langford, Fenola Hughes, marvellous cast. And they left the stage because they were repulsed by Grizabella, and she left the stage because she was lonely. And I couldn't leave the stage because I was a Jesus cat, and I was a Buddha cat, and it was held in my honour. So people would come and join me on stage eating their ice creams, which was absolutely lovely. (laughs) Usually children, of course, lots and lots of children. On one occasion, Mrs Thatcher uh, came and sat with me eating her ice cream. (laughs) And I said to her, Prime Minister, I said, is it not possible for you to reduce the price of VAT on the tickets? She said, "Who you know, old Deuteronomy, you're a very naughty pussycat. <laughs> and she slapped my hand, You deal with musicals and I'll deal with being Prime Minister. It's <laughs> I couldn't have faced her in the House of Commons. Oh my God, formidable lady. While I'm still talking about all the famous people I've known in my life, for the sound I'm now stroking my eyebrows, the Queen has always, as I said, having infinite taste, preferred me as Fancy Smith in Zekars, and used to watch me in Zekars all the time during her pregnancy. But on occasions, I have met her since, she has followed my Everest exploits with trepidation. I attended the 40th anniversary of the Ascent of Everest, the 53 one, which was wonderful at the Royal Geographical Society. great evening, six of the 1953 climbers were there, and they showed part of the film that was made, which was wonderful, wonderful. And people just rose and clapped and clapped and clapped solidly because something important had taken place. It was a wonderful evening, all the world's explorers were there, and I was privileged to be there because I'd been to Everest at that time twice. So, boys' own stuff for me. The Queen was in uh, turquoise. And Princess Anne was there, and Princess Alexandra, people like that. I must say, the Queen does seem to have a slight aura about it. She does have something. It's indefinable. I always call her Knuckles, because she sticks her knuckles into my muscles when she meets me. You're a very naughty boy, going up Mount Everest. You're very, very naughty. I didn't have a wink's sleep last time you went up. You're far too old to be going up Mount Everest, she said. I could bring out an edict and order you not to go. (laughs) She said, you wouldn't obey me, would you? I said, no, ma'am. There you are. You're stubborn like my (laughs) mummy. I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, as to put a few more swear words in, that during the evening, wonderful adventurers there, wonderful climbers, from your Bonningtons to your Scots to your Germans and Norwegians and Sherpas and dignitaries, ambassadors and God knows what, some of the other kind of uh, r- lovely mountaineers were there. Uh, Paul Nunn, who unfortunately died this year, great mountaineer, and Bronco Lane and people like that were coming up and saying, who well, said, oh, Brian, when that gets to the top! Well, come coming down, put one bloody foot in front of the other. Get off, pillock! And as he said that, the Queen walked straight into it. I said, I'm terribly sorry, ma'am. And terrible swearing. It's all right. I've heard worse at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I digress. Back to Cats. All the children would come onto the stage in the interval and join me. I remember on one occasion, one of the children, I said to her, are you enjoying the show? And she said, Yes. And her parents started to cry, and I thought, oh, my God, I said the wrong thing. And they said, no, 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 Mr. Blessed, it's all right. It's just it's the first time that our child has ever spoken. And that was the effect of cats. Not me. They came from all over England, all over Britain, and they would make themselves up as cats. And so I said to the management, let them stay with me. So as the lights went down and went blue, and I sang these ten lines of rest to teeth, they just sat with me. So they became part of the show, which of course their parents loved, that they actually been in the great musical, because I mean, Cats is the most successful musical, the most successful show of all time. I must say that when I climbed Mount McKinley, I came down and went further into the interland of Alaska, I, I actually saw an Eskimo outside an igloo playing memory on a banjo. <laughs> so that's how successful Cats is. <laughs> I had to say, of course, my voice is used a lot for all kinds of things. I usually I, I do my voiceovers all over the place, and I, I usually do giants and dragons. When you go into Disneyland in Paris, when the dragon greets you, oh, 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 that's me. <laughs> when people come into this country, there's a big hologram, I think, in Dover, down there somewhere, about 80-foot-wide man, the well, kind of the most famous man in Dover, welcome, dear, welcome, that's me as well. I <laughs> uh, right know it all, you see. Toad to Toad Hall, that's what I am. I'm also, I have to say, I'm Crackle in the Rice Krispies advert. (laughs) I do the voice of Crackle. (laughs) And I I do lots of these kind of voiceovers, and I do it in a place called Floral Street, and it's right by Covent Garden. And, of course, these days, I mean, you see lots of tramps in London, and lots of young men, unfortunately, and, and, and ladies as well, in sleeping bags. Let's hope all that passes. It's awful and very sad. By the way, in the Himalayas or in life, if you come across a tramp, do be careful when that tramp suddenly says to you, hello, for ye have entertained angels, unknown. There's always some time in your life when you're going to come across your guardian angel, probably two or three times in disguise. You were rather naughty that day, you were rather rude to me. So when you're in the tube and suddenly suddenly one's coming up that way and you're going that way, hello, (laughs) have a good look, it can be your guardian angel. There was one man about eight months ago, about 40 years of age, long hair, drinking his wine, and I came out of Covent Garden from that way to Floral Street, and of course he mistook me for Pavarotti. <laughs> excuse me, master, excuse me, master, I can't afford the ticket. Oh, please, master, please give me a few notes. So I, there's people all over the street, and I went, Cello ma, of Splendid commune, santo Thank you, master. I have never felt such a bloody hypocrite in all my life. <laughs> but then, I mean, you've got to. There are times in your life, I mean, I'm always being confused with Colin Welland. Or I used to be. Colin Welland was in Z Cars, and we were both physically about the same. We look entirely different. He used to look like the heavyweight boxer Billy Walker. But anyway, one day a person came up to me and said, Oh, I've admired you for so long, Mr. Welland. I, I just adored Chariots of Fire. You wrote that beautifully. You were well worth your Oscar. Would you please sign your autograph? So I signed the book, Colin Welland. <laughs> You've got to, haven't you? You know. I have to say, of course, Colin won the Oscar. We're very close, Colin and I. <laughs> Colin won the Oscar, of course, for Chariots of Fire. And, of course, he didn't win the BAFTA. I remember on television the close-up was on his face and it was Gregory's Girl and Something Else and Something Else and Chariots of Fire. So the nominations are this, that, and this, that and the other, and Gregory's Girl and Chariots of Fire. And the winner is Gregory's Girl. And they cut to Colin's face and went, oh. <laughs> 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 Got to admire him for that, haven't you? You know, and that's somebody being sincere, you know. totally saying effing hell about the whole thing. Absolutely bloody marvellous, I must say. I wish they'd do that in, in, in Hollywood, you know, be that, be that natural. The people the next day said to me, You behaved disgracefully yesterday. <laughs> really, really do get fed up. I have to say, by the way, in Z-Cars, of course, it was a live show. I mean, 45 minutes of it was live. I mean, I adored Z-Cars, and I can't bear actors who knock what's done them good. I really do cane them. I kick them up the backside about things like that. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Probably the best thing I've ever done, really, probably Fancy Smith. But, you know, dear, there was a red light on your face, and it was live. Absolutely live. And, of course, you'd sit in those cars, you know, And they'd have the back projection to your left or behind you with this moving picture behind you as if you were driving the car. And of course, if, you know, Joe and I, if the scene was over and the back projection was still going and the red light was still on, we'd just invent something or sing a song or whistle. On one occasion I was driving, and of course the camera's right on your face with these marvellous close-ups in Z cars. 18 million viewers and a red light. I got this old man in the car with me and the camera here and the back projection just there on my left-hand side. I'm driving along, we finished the scene, and I noticed that he's beginning to get out of the car. And I said, don't get out. I'm driving the car, I've got the camera out of my face. He said, what? I said, don't get out, don't get out. And he started to get out, so I grabbed him with my left hand as subtly as I could, still driving the car nonchalantly. And he just fought me off. And he opened the door and got out and said, good night, Constable. And he got out of the car at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> you daft sod. <laughs> of course, I mean, one of the awful things, I mean, in Z cars, I mean, I've never... Was the visitors. It's awful. I mean, b- being a live show, you can imagine. You know, we got used to it. Our adrenaline was up, and we were used to it. Or if we made mistakes, we could catch up next week, couldn't we? I remember I'd, I had to kind of break down that great actor John Hurt playing a teddy boy. I walked towards him. It's a 10-minute scene. I had to break him down subtly. I said, now then, now then, what's all this? What's your name? And he just went, ah, oh, ah, uh, I'm guilty. Oh, God. I thought my god you know and i looked at the floor manager he said what shall i do cue the next scene cue the next scene of course the news went out 10 minutes early that night <laughs> that was a great problem with it ladies and gentlemen i will take you back to everest 1990 remember i'd stopped at base camp when it arrived at the Rombook monastery and after about eight weeks nine weeks we fully acclimatized we're about to move up the mountain. i got the giant alongside me and David Bashir's in front of me and our crew and so forth are about to move up. A wonderful day. I was in the 20s gear. I was very frightened because in actual fact Peter Habler, one of the world's greatest mountaineers, was coming down the mountain from 25,000 feet. Peter Habler climbed Everest in 1978 with Reinhold Mesner, the two world's greatest mountaineers. For the first time they cracked it without oxygen. He was coming down from the Holbein Couloir at 25,000 feet, and he had pulmonary edema and pneumonia. His lungs had filled up, and he's in a terrible state, and God knows what. And I thought I was going up there in the 20s gear, and I was 53. And I was certainly scared, but Brashear said, Brian, you've got nothing to fear but your fear. Everest loves you, and you love it. It'll be all right, Brian. Come on, Brian. Well, so we went up the central Rumbuck Glacier for a while, as you do, and then we veered off quite steeply up, into the East Rongbuk Glacier I keep saying how beautiful Everest is I have to say that certainly the East Rongbuk Glacier is really beatific there is no place like it on God's earth at all you enter it. it is Cretaceous and the kind of great chasms down there you see black flowers of ice you go on rising higher you go over Syrax and over ice bridges, quite precarious, on, up, up for about eight, nine, ten hours. And you reach the fairy kingdom of ice and snow, given the name by Maori and the Everestiers of 1921. You get there, and it stretches for about 56 miles at 20,000 feet. And it's amazing these kind of wonderful statues that are carved out by the wind over the last. 40 million years, this old ice and it's iridescent green and blue and white and clear. As Mallory said, even the white rabbit would have been bewildered here. Ah, amazing. Of course, the ultraviolet rays and the radiation, the shortwave ultraviolet rays are incredibly fierce when you go in it. And I at this point 20,000 feet, which is the highest I'd ever been. I'd been to the top of Kilimanjaro. 19,336 feet high, but here at 20,000 feet. And we put the cameras down, Brashears put the cameras down, the 35mm cameras, and Graham Hoyland and I, you know, the, the, the grandnephew of Somerville, we moved up then the great corridor called the Great Trough, Captain O called the Trough. A great corridor of ice, 200 feet high, 500 feet wide, going on the staircase to heaven, the celestial staircase up and down, I mean murderous. Oh, amazing, humps like miniature Snowdens up and down we went, filming. Oh. <laughs> and the sun came out and poured inside the corridor, the trough, and some of its stagnant air that's been there for millions of years. And you suffer from glacial lassitude. Oh, suddenly you have no energy. Then the energy comes back as you manage to get a bit of new air. And it burned our throats and became 140 degrees above we stripped off and eventually we got to the top and there towards the evening and we couldn't believe we were at the top Graham and I we just embraced we just loved and held and cried and there to the left was the Lac But where Mallory had been in 1921 and there was a North Coal and we rounded it at 21,000 feet there was a the North Coal you see there's a change at 5,000 feet there's a change at 10,000 feet there's a change at 15 there's a change at 20 at 22 and a half thousand feet it's called the death zone. You're dying. You've got about 18, 19 days to live, and then you die. You die, lack of atmospheric pressure, lack of oxygen, cosmic rays, radiation, shortwave ultraviolet rays, lack of all kinds of things. Your muscles start to fade away. When I came back from this expedition, I have to say, I went there a very fit 16 stone. I came back 8 stone 4. And it starts to kind of fall off you in all shapes and forms. Just high enough. God's made it just high enough it's a big test and anyway at 22 and feet it's called the death zone go into it you're alive in the dead zone the idea that we've got miles up there is absolute rubbish in fact the deterioration I think starts at about 18,000 feet really but it's very thin it's very thin our atmosphere at 26,000 feet you've only got six days to live and then you die At 28,000 feet, you've got about a day and a half to live, and then you die. When you find dead bodies at 28,000 feet, they're like that. They never expected they would die. I feel fine. They're dead. Anyway, on this occasion, we were... At 21,000 feet we got to the top of the corridor, we embraced, and then all the lads joined us, the Sherpas, the Yak Herders, and we got to 21,500 feet, pitched our camp and our tent and so forth. And that evening, I mean, we laughed. I mean, really laughed for hours. I couldn't get a phone. We just laughed for hours, you know. J.P., our director, was constantly wrapped around the Yak Herders. I said, you will stink for 20 years. I mean, <laughs> I mean they, never, they haven't bathed ever. One yak herder once bragged to me that he'd had a bath 20 years ago, but if you were downwind of him, I seriously question that. During the night, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and there was Krishna, the cook, and he was dancing. I said, Krishna, what are you doing? He said, oh, Bhaji, I'm dancing to God to say thank you for life. Well, I mean, we don't begin sometimes, do we? Isn't it amazing that a man can dance to God at 4 o'clock in the morning? The next day, the BBC stayed down at 21,500 feet. Brashears, the giant, our camera, Hoyland and two Sherpas, Chuling and Wong Chu, we set off for the base of the North Coal. I mean, I was shaking with excitement. And we had great humps and chasms and ice bridges, and we got to the base of the coal. I mean, there it is this great fossil, the North Coal. If we could get up that, then that was it. And there was a North Ridge in Changxi si, the North. And there's just Everest. And I was started and I got to 21,700 and 22,000 and 22 and a half thousand. And of course, if you do that, you must go smoothly and small steps. Anyway, I was moving up and then at twenty-two and a half thousand feet, my heart stopped suddenly. And so my heart! My heart! i stopped and I was hit it and hit and hit my chest so many times, and the giant said, Brian, you're okay, Brian, you're just going too fast. Slow steps, Brian, and small steps, Brian. And watch your emotion. You're going to become a zombie at this height. You're enjoying yourself too much, Brian. Just, you just got to, just got to kind of calm down, Brian. It happened to me three times, and of course I went on. It passed, thank God. Oh my God, the experts are right. And then I got higher and higher, I got within 16 feet, 15 feet from the top. And Bashir saying, come on, Brian, come on, Brian, come on, Brian, the giant behind. And suddenly I got to the top of the North Col, which was very thin at that particular point. I got over, straggled, it I had one foot in Tibet and one foot in Nepal. And I felt this high up there. And Bashir said, look, Brian, I look what you've earned. And there was a whole north face of Everest. And we went for miles, 26 miles, and all face right across. And it's, of course, She's a woman. I can relate to the woman in religion, the female. It gets too orientated towards the male religion. It has to be balanced with the female. And it is a woman, and the light was on her face. And just a little bit of wind saw a streamer, a hair like a hair, there for a hundred miles, these ice crystals of her hair, and down the pyramid of her shoulders. And then it was the sandstone. And down the middle of her dress, the Hornbine Kulwa and the great Kulwa and the North Ridge lit in red, dashing colour down her granite dress. Well, I went in the tent and it became dark quickly. And, and Bashir said, Brian, come out of the tent. And I put my head outside the tent. And you see, here, and where I live in Chobham, we don't have a night. We just don't have night. There's so much light. And I got out of the tent. And the darkness of the night at 23,000 feet and the clarity and the thinness of the air. I mean, in the tropics or in the Mediterranean, if you see the Milky Way, you think, "How wonderful the Milky Way is. It is, yes. But at 23,000 feet, it sits on your head. And it is solid. It is not stars. It is solid like a kind of giant Roman candle of green and blue. Ah, and Orion and its outriders. And Venus looks like a gong. It's so big. The Milky Way is in foals. Every seven seconds a meteorite hits the north face. And I heard this noise. I can't do it. I said, what what's that, David? What's that? He said, Brian, that's the sound of the earth spinning on its axis. Well you don't know how to say thank you, you know you Thank you to the people who got you up there. What a privilege, you know. The next morning, the giant came along, and he adjusted my crampons, he adjusted my harness, and he was fumbling. I said, what's the matter, Jeff? He said, I've gone blind, I've had cerebral hemorrhage. Well, he climbed Macaloo, 27,900 feet. He climbed all the climbs on El Capitan, Yosemite, and he got cerebral hemorrhage. I said, well, that's my fault. That's why you're here. I said, no, Brian, I'd, I'd give anything to be here, Brian. I'd give my left arm to be here. We'd all want to be on Mallory's route. we all want to be part of this film, Brian. It's not just your dream. And anyway, he said, I'll get my eyesight back. And he did, six months later. But he went down the coal with the porters and he just said, Brian, watch your heart as you're going out. They're going to put you on the ridge now. They think you can go higher. They're going to put you up there. Just listen to your heart and it he, gurgling in your lungs. Turn back, Brian, because you can die so quickly. And he went down. Bashir set the camera and I set off on the fixed rope and went up. It looks foreshortened, the North Ridge. It actually is quite steep and then does that and then does that. It's deceptive. And I started moving up little short steps and it was 8 o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful day. It's amazing how much progress you make with little steps. And there was no breeze. And I could feel Everest virtually saying, look, he's heavy, he's 53, no winds. Let's not have any winds. Come on, son. Up pick up. And I went up, and my breathing was good. And I got to 23,500 feet, 24,000 feet, 25,000 feet. And I looked down, and I was looking down the North Pole, And my breathing was good, my heart was good. And I was higher than Changxi, si, 24,700 feet. And I was as high as Gai Chung Kang, and I was higher than Pumari. And I could see the curvature of the earth and I was alone on the north face of Everest, I mean I was alone from being seven years of age, I mean I was there, it was amazing there the huge face and Mallory and Irving just there and I was with them and I was just going up oh, oh, nobody else was there oh, well, you know, it, it was amazing I. I felt at one, breathing, I felt like a lung, and I felt the mountain breathing. And I got a 26,200 feet in an a Norfolk jacket and all that. And I found a dead Frenchman, 20 years of age, I turned him round. He died a few days earlier, so I turned him round so I could look at the summit. I talked to his mother. When I got back, got a little higher, uh, eventually the lads all joined me, and we completed the film, very close to where Marion Evin was. Very deep stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I didn't talk about Kevin Costner, did I? No. Well, I I suppose i better end on that, and then just a poem. When I did the one-man show about three or four years ago, it was a very different show and far too long. Very natural fact. I used to end it with a kind of longbow. I did sporting chance on television. They selected this longbow for me, and most longbows are seventy-eight pound bows or eighty-five pound bows, usually sixty-eight pound bows. But when the Mary Rose came up out of the Thames that time, they suddenly found these longbows on board that belonged to the bodyguards of Henry the 8th. And it was estimated they were a hundred and fifty-pound bow. There are only two in the world. One in Switzerland, and I've got the other. The bowyers made it for me. It took them eight months to make it. It kept exploding all the time. It's a fantastic thing. And when, once I could bench press four hundred and fifty pounds, I could just draw it. Oh, just draw it. And it probably, you know, apart from that, and the one in Switzerland hadn't been drawn for four hundred years. A hundred and fifty-pound bow. Well, the bow that. Kevin Costner draws in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves that's a (laughs) 23 (laughs) pound (laughs) bow. You've been to the top of Everest now go back to base camp ladies and gentlemen and go home safely Tonight and complete your evening. I'll end by just doing six or seven lines from the reconnaissance of 1921 Colonel Howard Burry put the poem in by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's this let us probe the silent places. Let us seek what luck betide us. Let us journey to a lonely land I know. There's a whisper in the night wind, a star, a gleam to guide us. And the wind is calling, calling. Let us go. God bless. You've been listening to An Hour with Brian Blessed, recorded in 1996.